that the teaching will be encouragement to you, even though we're going to talk about some heavy things. So open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24, we find ourselves once again on that mount called Olivet, where Peter and Andrew and James and John, have, those two sets of brothers, came to Jesus privately, and they were receiving a teaching from Jesus about the sign of his coming. They asked him specifically about that and the signs of the end of the age. So Jesus, we have seen thus far, has told them about the signs. Now keep in mind that Mark chapter 13 and Luke chapter 21 gives us a full account of this discourse called the Olivet Discourse. And Father, as we come, I just pray that we want to be attentive. Uh, we want to be free from distractions. We want to be free from just things that are on our minds um, that we come in with to be able to hear your word for the next few moments. And in even those out in the coffee shop, I pray that it would be still out there. And, and Lord, that we need to hear your word. And these words that we read, even though they're heavy, and it may be a lot uh, for us to comprehend, but Lord, there's something for us here. And what is for us here that we desire to take in and, Lord, make application for today? And Lord, so we thank you that we are here. Thank you for every person that has come into this place. There's a reason for you to take your word and work it deep within their hearts. And Lord, draw us to yourself. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So Luke's gospel of this account, Luke emphasizes the destruction of the temple. And you might recall that it was Jesus that he would tell his disciples that, that the temple here, the magnificent temples, is going to be destroyed. Not one stone upon another. It's all going to be cast down. It's going to be plowed under. So Luke emphasizes that in his account of the Olivet Discourse. We know that it is Mark and Matthew here that emphasize the signs of his coming. And it is likened to birth pangs, the beginning of sorrows. And there will be wars and rumors of war, and nation against nation. And there will be famines and pestilence and earthquakes in various places. And false Christs and prophets will rise up. And there will be persecution, and the gospel will be preached to all the nations. And as most of you know, that one of the most documented periods of time that we have in the Bible is yet future. It's called the tribulation period. It is that final seven-year period um, that is right prior to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And in that seven-year period, we know that the last half of that seven-year period, three and a half years, is called the Great Tribulation Period. And that's what Jesus is going to be speaking of as we enter into verse 15 and pick up our text. Now, we ended at verse 14. Let me read it to you again. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. So that's what we, we ended it with last time. And in that seven-year period that is given to us the details of what's going to take place in Revelation chapter 6 through 19. And in that seven-year period, uh, we're going to see what begins that seven-year period in just a moment as we continue to read. But at that time that we know that the gospel is going to be preached to all the world. In Revelation chapter 7, there is the 144,000 Jewish believers, Jewish men that are going to evangelize the world 
12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And then we know that in Revelation chapter 11, there's the two witnesses in Jerusalem. And then as we discussed last week in Revelation chapter 14, there is that proclamation of the angel that will go to every tribe, tongues, people, and nation and preach the gospel. So the gospel is going to go throughout the world. Matter of fact, 144,000 that we see in Revelation chapter 7 to remind you that they are evangelists that will go out preaching the gospel because we see in chapter 7 that there are the tribulation saints, the tribulation believers from every tribe, tongues, people, and nation. So the gospel is going to go throughout all the nations. Then the end will come. And that term, the end will come, is talking about the consummation of things coming to an end. And then as we continue reading here in verse 15, that he begins to talk about that, that final three and a half years that begins with this event, this very specific event, that we read in verse 15 of chapter 24. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. So here is Jesus continuing to describe the events and signs that will tell us that his second coming is close and near. And in verse 15, Jesus speaking of that time called the great tribulation period, Jacob's trouble, and how it relates to Israel. How do we know that? Because we see it very clearly in the next verses. He's going to mention that when you see it, flee from Judea. Pray that it isn't on the Sabbath and so forth. So therefore, verse 15, in light of what I've told you of the signs of my return, when you see this very specific event, the abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel the prophet and Matthew inspired by the Spirit of God adds this footnote that whoever reads, let him understand. Now why? Let's continue reading verse 16. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house and let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes but woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days and pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the sabbath for then there will be great tribulations such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time no nor ever shall be so jesus telling his disciples and we get to listen in to this private teaching of Jesus that took place 2,000 years ago. And we are being told that the abomination that causes desolation, that what's going to follow is there's going to be great tribulation. And to have understanding of it. Now, you may be thinking, I've never heard of that. Some of you that you've been with us in our study through the scriptures that we have taught about the abomination of desolation. You know what that is. But many people that have been coming that you don't know what it is. You're saying, what is that? So what we need to do is go back to the book of Daniel. I'm going to be reading from Daniel chapter 9, particularly the last two verses that are very important for us to understand what is being talked about here. And it gives us details about that. You see, Daniel is called the forerunner to the book of Revelation. And in Daniel chapter 2 and chapter 7 is really called the foundation of Bible prophecy. And I'll explain that in just a minute. But as Daniel is writing... Keep in mind, if in the Old Testament, that there was the 70 years of captivity as Babylon came into Judah, there was three waves of deportation that took place. 
In 605 BC, Daniel and the choice men of Judah would go off into captivity. They would go to Babylon. And of course, Daniel would be trained in the affairs of the Babylonian government. He ended up being, you know, the right-hand man, really, of Nebuchadnezzar during that time. So Daniel, just a young man, taken off to Babylon. Then the second deportation, as Babylon came back into Jerusalem, it would include Ezekiel. So Ezekiel would be taken off into captivity, and he's prophesying there in Babylon. Then Jeremiah's in Jerusalem, and he's ministering there, Jeremiah the prophet, and he's telling the leaders, don't rebel against Nebuchadnezzar. Turn away from your idol worship. Turn away from your sins. Don't rebel against Nebuchadnezzar, because if you do, the city's going to be destroyed. And Zedekiah, the last king of Judah, what does he do? He rebels against Nebuchadnezzar. So in 586 B.C., here comes Babylon, and they leveled Jerusalem and destroyed the first temple, that is Solomon's temple, that was also a magnificent building, as you read about the construction of that temple recorded in Scripture. And as that is destroyed... Jeremiah also, he would prophesy that there's going to be 70 years of captivity. So Daniel, in Daniel chapter 9, it's towards the end of that 70 years. He's an elderly man, and he's there praying for the nation. He's praying for his people. And he knows that the the prophet Jeremiah said 70 years of captivity is going to take place. So he knows that the captivity is just about over. And as we read about how the Medo-Persian Empire came and took over Babylon, you read about that in Daniel chapter 5. But here's Daniel, he's praying, and then he's interrupted by an angel named Gabriel. And Gabriel comes to Daniel and says, Daniel, that I've come to give you understanding. Not about 70 years, but about 70 weeks. And he says in that prophecy, which is the prophecy of the 70 weeks of Daniel, it's one of the most amazing prophecies in all of Scripture. We're not going to look at it all this morning. I've already talked about the first part of that prophecy in the triumphal entry of Jesus. And in the prophecy, that 70 weeks or 70 periods of seven years. Now, when you read that term weeks, it's a period of seven years. Just like if I was to say a, a decade, you would know as what? 10 years. So 70 weeks are determined for your people, Daniel, and for your holy city. Know and understand the matter. Consider it, Daniel, even as we are being told that we need to consider the abomination of desolation spoken of Daniel the prophet. So there's going to be 70 periods of seven years or 490 years that is determined for your people, Daniel, the prophecy says here. Who is Daniel's people, the Jews. And for your holy city, that is Jerusalem. Now, there are those who come along and say, well, it's speaking of the church. It's not speaking of the church. It is speaking of Daniel's people, the Jews, the holy city of Jerusalem. Keep in mind that as Daniel's receiving this prophecy, that the temple had been destroyed and Jerusalem laid in rubble. So as the prophecy goes on, I would refer you back to the triumphal entry of Jesus, Matthew chapter 21. We talked about it, that as there is Jesus weeping over Jerusalem at that time, 
Luke particularly records how Jesus would say as he wept over Jerusalem that you didn't know the day of your visitation. It was the religious leaders that would try to quiet the disciples and saying that don't have your disciples ascribe the, the, you know, that, you know, psalm that they're saying. They were ascribing to him the, the messianic term of blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And, and from the psalm that, that speaks of Messiah, that speaks of the Messiah that would come on the scene, tell your disciples to be quiet, this is blasphemy. And remember that Jesus said, if they be quiet, the very rocks will cry out. You didn't know the day of your visitation. So he's making reference to this prophecy here, again, which is amazing. And we've talked about it, just again, a real quick review, that known therefore from the going forth of the command to rebuild and restore Jerusalem, verse 25 here, until Messiah the Prince should be seven weeks and 62 weeks, or 69 periods of seven years, or 483 years. And then the street shall be built again in the wall, even in troublesome time. So what is being told, that when the command comes out to rebuild and restore Jerusalem, which is in Nehemiah chapter 2, there's going to be 483 years until Messiah the Prince comes. So they've done the calculations, as a lot of you know. March 14, 445 B.C., 483 years later, April 6, 32 A.D. What happened on that day is Jesus said to two of his disciples, go in and get that that that." Colt and untie him and if the owner says why are you taking you know that colt that donkey tell him that the master has need of him and he got on it and the people were waving the palm branches and yelling out Hosanna blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord again ascribing to him the title of Messiah and it was for the very first time that Jesus accepted public worship and we know that as he came into the city he's weeping he said you should have known the day of your visitation so that period of time where Messiah would be cut off as it continues after 62 weeks in verse 26 the Messiah shall be cut off but not for himself so he would be crucified. So 69 of those weeks have passed, but 70 weeks are determined for your people. There's still a one seven-year period that is yet to be fulfilled. There has now been a 2,000-year gap called the church age. What's going to happen? Well, this is where we need to put on our thinking caps. And to the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end of it shall be with the flood until the end of war desolations are determined. So here, that the people, the prince who is to come, are going to destroy the sanctuary in the holy city. It was in rubble. So he's talking about a future time where the temple would be rebuilt. That's the second temple period. So rubble would come back after the decree from Cyrus that they could come back and rebuild the temple. And then, of course, we talked about how it was modified, a magnificent building destroyed by who? Rome. Titus. So the people, um, that is, as we read, of the prince who is to come. The prince who is to come is the title of the one in verse 27, that then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. You see, Daniel is called the foundation of Bible prophecy because in Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. He has a dream of an image, uh, a statue of a man, and Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar what you know, was that 
he had in his dream, what he saw, and the interpretation of it. And he says, Nebuchadnezzar, you saw that image made of different types of metal. And Daniel begins to tell of the empires that would come on the scene from the time of Daniel up until the second coming of Jesus Christ. The head of gold, Nebuchadnezzar, that you saw, that's you. You're the head of gold. But your kingdom's going to be replaced by another. That is the chest and arms uh, of silver, which is the Medo-Persian Empire. And the Medo-Persian Empire is going to be replaced by the Grecian Empire, the belly and thighs of brass, and that's Alexander the Great. And then the legs of iron that you saw represent the Roman Empire. And then in that statue, there was the feet and ten toes. It was iron mingled with clay. And Bible scholars call that the revived Roman Empire. And those ten toes are ten kings that will be on the scene, listen, when the second coming of Jesus Christ happens. And then a rock came and broke the, the image, and it all crumbled and turned to dust, and the rock grew, and it speaks of the kingdom of God, our rock, Jesus Christ. So it's, it's the very foundation of Bible prophecy. So there's going to be these ten kings that are going to be on the scene that's connected to the Roman Empire, this revived Roman Empire. It is reiterated again in Daniel chapter 7 when he sees four beasts, and the fourth beast that represents Rome. He doesn't tell us what kind of beast it was. He only says that it was dreadful and horrible, and it had ten horns, and then there was a little horn that came in the, in the midst of the ten horns, and that speaks of the Antichrist. So the people, the prince who is to come, that is Rome, that the Antichrist, verse 27, listen, he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week for that seven years. So there's still a seven-year period concerning Daniel's people who are what? The Jews and Jerusalem, that's why we say that Israel is going to be thrust to the forefront in that tribulation period. And we see that it begins with the Antichrist coming on the scene and he's going to confirm a covenant with them for one week for seven years. It seems to be connected with the building of the, the temple in Jerusalem. Now, a couple of things. The tribulation period that final seven-year period before the second coming of Jesus Christ, it begins with him making his covenant with Israel for a week. And it's some kind of peace treaty, some kind of a treaty that brings peace to the Middle East, it seems to indicate to us, and for the Jews to rebuild their temple. There is no temple in Jerusalem. There hasn't been for 2,000 years. But they are building the temple even as we speak. Not the building, but over the last couple of decades, they're getting all the furnishings ready to go when the temple does become erected. You can go to a place, some of you have been with us to Israel, where we went to the Temple Institute. They got all the furnishings ready to go, the garments ready to go. They're training young men in sacrifices. All the things are ready to go. They're just waiting. They even got the blueprints to the temple. They're just waiting for the go-ahead to be able to do that. So they're not able to build their temple now because up on the Temple Mount is a place called the Dome of the Rock, which is a Muslim holy site. So if they dare go up there and try to build a temple, then every Muslim in the world is going to come riding down on top of Jerusalem. So that's why that this Antichrist is going to come on the scene, Revelation chapter 6, the first seal that is opened up, Beginning the tribulation period is the rider on a white horse. He comes conquering unto conquer. He has a bow, but he doesn't have an arrow. So he comes in peaceful means. 
So he's going to come on the scene out of this revived Roman Empire. Daniel painstakingly is emphasizing that. And we will see that when we go through the book of Daniel, Lord willing, sometime in, 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 when we get done with Matthew. But as we go through it, it's going to be established that the Antichrist, he's going to be an economic leader. He's going to be a political leader. He's going to be a military leader. And he's going to be a religious leader. So he's going to come with seemingly a peacemaker, have the answers to the world, to the peace in the Middle East. The world's looking for answers, and he's going to come on the scene, and then something's going to happen in the middle of the week. And that is what is called the abomination of desolation. Again, as we read, but in the middle of the week, that's after three and a half years. And, and, and here's the thing. The most documented period of time recorded to us in Scripture, the tribulation period, the great tribulation period, you see over and over again in Daniel, also in the book of Revelation, described as 42 months, 1,260 days, um, time times and a half times, three and a half years. So it's a specific period of time in the middle of the tribulation period, this event called the abomination of desolation is going to happen. So as we look at this, here is the Antichrist that begins the tribulation period. He comes conquering on the conquer. He makes a covenant with Israel for one week. Some of you might be thinking, well, doesn't the rapture of the church, doesn't that start the tribulation period? No. I believe the rapture will happen before the tribulation period. How much time before the rapture and when the Antichrist comes on the scene? Keep in mind as we're putting all the pieces of the puzzle together as Paul would write, for that which constrains will continue to do so until he is taken out of the way. And I believe, once again, that that's speaking of the Holy Spirit indwelling the church, we are a restraining factor. And when we are taken home in what is called the rapture of the church, we're going to talk more about it as we continue through the Olivet Discourse here. As we look at that, that we are a restraining factor. And when the church is gone, it's not that the Holy Spirit is gone, but the restraining factor of the church is going to be gone. Then the lawless one will be revealed, Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Then the Antichrist will come on the scene. And that's why I've said we're not looking for Antichrist. We are looking for Jesus Christ. Amen? And that's why we're to keep our eyes on the things above, and we are to, to look for his return. So here is the Antichrist. He will come on the scene probably shortly after, because once the church is gone, lawlessness is going to just to spread very quickly, I believe, and we know that uh, he will come on the scene. And in that time, as we look at it, uh, he is making that covenant, the abomination of desolation, as the Jews will rebuild their temple. Um, and in the middle of the week, that tribulation period, he will break that treaty, as Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, that this man of sin, this son of perdition, John, in his epistle, calls him the Antichrist, will exalt himself above all that is called God or that which is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Revelation chapter 13 tells us that an image was made to the Antichrist and that the image would cause the many of the world to worship. The whole world begins to break out in, in worship of the beast. That's the title given to him in Revelation chapter 13. Uh, 
So the Antichrist, he goes into the rebuilt temple. He sets up an image of himself in the Holy of Holies, and he demands the world to worship him. Remember in Revelation chapter 17, there's a false worldwide church that is on the scene. It's the woman riding the beast. The, the Antichrist supports that false world system uh, and religious church that, you know, for his purposes. But halfway in the tribulation period, he's going to turn and destroy the woman, as told to us in Revelation chapter 17, because he alone wants to be worshipped. What's something that Satan has always wanted? To be worshipped, Right? So he's directly in the influence of Satan. He will command the world to worship him. And then as we read in Revelation chapter 12, that the Jews will flee a remnant of them to the rock city Petra. They will escape the wrath of the Antichrist because the Jews will say, we will not worship your image. That's one thing that they haven't done since 586 B.C. is turn to idol worship. Whatever this image is, it seems to be alive. It's, it's amazing. But they will not accept him as their Messiah, as the one to be worshipped. He will go after the Jews. He will persecute them very heavily. And the tribulation saints that are coming to Christ during the tribulation period. And it is going to be great tribulation. The final three and a half years. It will be terrible, horrible time as war breaks out and persecution and during that time, God is pouring out his wrath on a Christ-rejected world. Now, there are those who will come along and say that the abomination of desolation took place already in 70 A.D. It's held by some, it's called the preterist view, and that the prophecies of the book of Revelation have already happened, and the temple was desecrated by Titus. And I respectfully disagree with that, because the temple wasn't desecrated. It was destroyed. Titus did not set up an image of himself. He did not proclaim himself as God. He did not set up an economic system to where you couldn't buy or sell unless you take his mark. So what is Jesus telling us here in Matthew 24 is yet future, and the tribulation period is yet future, and these things, Jesus says, will happen. In Luke, he said that heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. And we continue reading in verse 22, and unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved, but for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. We know that the last world war will take place in the valley of Jezreel or Megiddo in northern Israel, according to Revelation chapter 16. The kings of the whole world will gather of the battle, the great day of God. And then Jesus, when that battle's going on, he's going to come back, Revelation chapter 19, and those, this is what's amazing, that those armies will stop fighting each other and they will turn and try to stop Jesus from coming back and fight against him. And Revelation chapter 19 tells us he will simply speak as a sharp sword comes out of his mouth. He will destroy those armies. And then we have the judgment of the nations that we'll talk about when we get into the next chapter. But I do want to bring it home a little closer to us and make some application. I mean, the foolishness of man trying to fight God. So maybe this morning there might be some of you that are here that you've been fighting God. Maybe he's been dealing with you about sin, carnality, worldliness, and you've been fighting him on it. It's like, Lord, I, I sense your conviction, but I don't want to deal with it. I don't want to forgive. 
I don't want to give up that sin. You know, I want to, to have my foot in the world. I got things to do. I got business. I got, I got, you know, money to make, whatever it might be. I'm not saying that you shouldn't do well in your business. I'm not saying that you should work hard. I think Christians should be the hardest workers that there are out there. But are you fighting the Lord on anything? Maybe it's an attitude. Maybe it's unforgiveness, whatever it might be. And as the Lord brings that conviction to you, don't fight him. Yield to him. Because he loves you. And let his love fill your heart. And as we read this and as we consider this, this is very heavy. And some of you might go, wow, you know, I've never heard this stuff before. And you just want to go home and crawl under the covers. And you think, man, this world's going to end in such a terrible way. Listen, we're not reading this to just frighten you and freak you out and to have this, you know, mindset of, you know, why even move forward? Listen, this should excite us. Because we're not appointed to wrath. We're appointed to salvation. And I believe that the Lord's going to come and take his bride and we're going to be in what is called the blessed hope or the rapture of the church. We are going to be taken out of this world and then the tribulation period is going to begin. And what it should do is it should cause an urgency within us that, Lord, I am here for such a time as this. We don't know the day or the hour as we continue reading of the coming of the Lord, the rapture of the church. He comes when we least expect. And I believe that the Lord can come at any moment. Again, we don't know when, but times and seasons we see the signs that are happening around us. And we are seeing, as we're going to see next time, the budding of the fig trees and all the trees that tell us that summer is near and his coming is near. And I believe that we are in very unique times. And as we look around us, we know that the coming of the Lord is nigh. I believe that his coming is very nigh. And we are to be watchful and waiting and we're to occupy till he comes. But it causes an urgency in me that, Lord, I need to be about your business and I am to occupy till you come. And I don't want to be just in carnality and sin and weighed down by the things of the world. Because the world is not our hope. Jesus is your hope. And I pray it stirs our hearts. And here you look at and you read Revelation 19. We talk about these things that man is so sinful. You know, people come along and say, mankind is good and there is good in mankind and we'll achieve peace at some time. No, we won't. And I'm not trying to be negative and down and a bummer and all this. I'm just telling you what the Word of God has to say. And the Word of God says that there will be no peace until the Prince of Peace comes back to rule and reign. And as we read this, it it causes an urgency in me. But to think that the rebellion of man, to think that he could fight against Jesus to no prevail. But let's finish up this morning. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise up showing great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. Therefore, if they say to you, look, he's in the desert, do not go out. Or look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. 
For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. And as I've mentioned, there, you know, this is the third time that Jesus has told us in this discourse that there's going to be a, a rise of false prophets and teachers working signs and wonders, great signs and wonders to deceive many. And when Jesus repeats something, we need to pay attention to it. So there is going to be the Antichrist that will come on the scene as well as the false prophet who will rise up and the false prophet spoken of of Revelation chapter 13. They will work by the power of Satan and Antichrist is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the false prophet, he performs great signs so that he even made fire come down from heaven or will do that as he deceives those who dwell on the earth and those signs which he is granted to do. That's why I've been emphasizing that my concern is in the church that more and more Christians are pursuing signs and wonders. I believe God works. He works miracles. He heals today. But if we just pursue signs and wonders, that we can get deceived because Satan can do signs and wonders. We see that in the book of Exodus with Pharaoh's magicians, and we know that it's going to happen in the last days. We need to test the spirits to see if they are of God because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So we got Christians today that are adopting you know, doctrines that are not biblical, based on signs and wonders. That the church is going to grow and it's going to grow in power and, and great signs and wonders are going to happen and we're going to heal everybody in the world and take over the, the civil authorities and the political parties and, and then we'll usher in the second coming. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says it's going to be perilous times in the last days. So there's a danger in that and Christians can get all caught up into, I'm just going to say it, weird things. I've seen it over the years. So easily caught up and here's a new move of the Spirit, be drunk in the Spirit. That's not in the Bible, the fruit of the Spirit, self-control. I never understand why would anybody want to be drunk in the Spirit. To me, that's stupid. So I don't mean to be making fun of it, but it concerns me. The pursuit of signs and wonders after those things that are not biblical at all. And if they're not biblical and we test them through the Word of God, we take it and we lay it aside. Jesus says here that wherever the carcass is, the eagle will be gathered together. Some have said that it's a figure of speech, that where corruption is, judgment will come. And as Jesus makes this reference, I believe it's to Revelation 19, when the nations of the world meet in that last war, the Valley of Megiddo. He comes back. He speaks. Those armies are destroyed. Then an angel standing in the sun he cried with a loud voice, we read in the chapter, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather together for the supper of the great God. So in chapter 19, you have the marriage feast of the Lamb. That's where you and I are going to have dinner with the Lord. Then the great supper of God is when all the birds are going to come. They eat the flesh of the kings, the flesh of the captains, mighty men, the flesh of horses and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all the people, both great and small. Nice picture. That's where the world's going to end up. So what does it mean for you and for me today? Listen. I pray for us that, again, if you're fighting against the Lord on anything, that you would surrender to him, whatever it is that you're holding on to. But also it would cause an urgency of us to be praying for the people around us in our lives
our community and for this nation. This weekend, we're going to be observing the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And those of us who are old enough, we remember it. Remember it? You can remember exactly where you were when you heard the news. I, I remember it. And it was just like it was yesterday. And I think about that time, how difficult it was for our nation and, and, and I, all that was going on. And I remember as me and a group of pastors were sent out there after the towers fell to minister to New York City police officers and be chaplains to them, standing there in the rubble of 9-11 when it was still burning. And at the end of the day, there'd be ash all over you and, and just talking to those first responders, firefighters and police officers that were down at ground zero, lost many that they loved, cared for. Um, it was an overwhelming time. They didn't want to go home. It was horrible. And I remember, you know, that it wasn't just the Twin Towers, but there were seven other buildings that collapsed. Part of uh, the Sheridan Hotel collapsed. And I remember everything was shut down down at Manhattan at that time and walking by the, the dining hall of the Sheraton Hotel and there was mold on the plates because what happened when the plane, first plane hit, everybody got up and they ran. And they just left it there. And I remember just how sobering it was and world leaders were coming to Ground Zero and looking and, and being there and their stories and uh, they're still very fresh in my mind. One police officer saying he lost his partner, that when the plane hit, that they ran, and one was on one side of the street, and his partner, he was on the other side, and then as they were running towards the Twin Towers, they all ran towards danger, that when the second plane hit, a part of the wheel of the plane hit his partner and killed him. That's what we, we were talking to people about. And we were down there ministering to them, and they didn't want to go home, and everything was shut down, and the city was empty, the streets, because they thought there was going to be another attack. And then we would go home, we would clean ourselves off, and then we would go back to a restaurant that was called Nebo's. And the whole southern Manhattan, that, that area was shut down, closed down. But this one owner of a restaurant, he opened up his restaurant to feed the first responders, and so we'd peel potatoes, and we'd work all night long. So all day down at ground zero, take a little rest, you know, wash ourselves off, go back, we peel potatoes, and hundreds, thousands of New York State troopers came in, New York City police officers, you know, uh, other law enforcement that came in. Um, that came in and we would talk with them and pray with them. And I remember standing next to a lady that was helping serving in the food line and her hand was just shaking. And I asked her, I said, are you okay? And she said, I'm trying to be okay. But she told her story about how she was in the, um, in the, the um, South Tower and she's looking out the window and when the North Tower got hit... And when it got hit, she saw the plane coming and hit the building, and it knocked her over. She got up. She ran down the steps all the way. She was like on the 80th floor or something, didn't take the elevator, ran outside, ran all the way home. As she's running home, all of a sudden the South Tower is hit. She got in her car, drove to Mississippi, and she was just coming back, and she wanted to help. 
But I thought, could things get any worse? And, and I remember being down there and the, just the respect of life. And whenever there was some of the remains that were found, a whistle would blow and they'd back up the ambulance and we all stand at attention as it backed up. And then as it would then go to the morgue. A couple months after that, I, I went to Israel and small group of pastors. We were the only ones in Israel. Nobody was traveling at that time. And, and we were with Amir Safati. Some of you know him from Behold Israel. It was before he was famous. Traveled with him for two weeks. We went into Jordan. We were the first group of Americans to go into Jordan after 9-11. And some of the people that we talked to, they said, oh, you're Americans. We're going to get you. And it's like, ah, you know, and all this. And it was a scary time. And I thought, could things get worse? And I think about our nation in the last 20 years. It's gotten worse. We need to pray for our communities, and we need to be praying for those that are linked to us in our lives. We need to be praying for our nation because I believe with all my heart that the hope of our nation is a spiritual awakening and revival and turning back to the Lord. That is the hope of our nation. Joshua, be strong of good courage, Joshua chapter 1. Three times the Lord told Joshua that as he was going to take the leadership of the children of Israel. And then at the end of Joshua chapter 1, that the people come to Joshua. And they say, Joshua, we have one thing that we ask of you, and that is you be strong of good courage. So I want to end with this. Don't go home and crawl underneath your covers, okay? Don't quit school. Don't quit your job. Occupy till I come is what Jesus said. And there are days where I feel like, Lord, I feel like crawling under the covers or finding a big rock, you know, up in Wyoming to crawl under, you know, and just stay there for a while. But the Lord has us here. And I think that he would say to all of us this morning, you be strong and good courage because I want to use you. Fathers, go home and lead your families. Pray for your children. Tell them about the Lord and raise them in the ways of the Lord. Husbands, love your wives. Go home and love your wife. You be that light and that truth to wherever you are planted at work. Because the Lord wants to use you, and the exhortation is you be strong, good courage, because there are people around us that are linked to us that need us to be strong and of good courage. And it isn't that I'm going to gut it out and grit my teeth and do it in my own energy and strength. It is a life that says, Lord, I need your help because there are times, even in this week, when I've talked to people that they come to me and say, I got cancer. Or I talk to a family that they just lost a loved one to COVID. Or those who are going through such difficulties, strain in the marriage, relationships in the family, kids running away, all this stuff. And I think, Lord, what is it do I do say? I don't even know what to say, but to pray and appoint them to Jesus because we have 
hope in him and we have truth to give and people are hurting and the Lord is asking us, you be strong and good courage. Don't hide. Don't get involved and weighed down with the world. This world is messed up and it's going to get more messed up. And I pray for our nation and pray for the people around us because we're here for such a time as this. I pray our hearts are stirred because we see the storm clouds gathering. Jesus said, you guys can discern the weather, but you can't discern the coming of the Son of Man. Storm clouds are gathering, folks. So I pray that it would cause us to leave this place and saying, Lord, every day for you and help me to be strong and good courage. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you so much. There's so much to talk about in this time. And I pray that, Lord, that our hearts would be stirred because we are in unique times. And as we come to the communion table, as we hold the elements, that we can be thankful for this new covenant that we're a part of, a covenant based on your body being broken, Lord, your blood shed for the forgiveness of sin. And I pray for us that if there's anyone here that you've been fighting the Lord on anything, that you, would, that you would turn to him, that you would repent. He wants you to do that because he loves you and confess it. And as we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And Lord, that we hold the elements that we be thankful because we have a living hope. We have the blessed hope before us. So Lord, just help us right now to be thankful for what you did on Calvary's cross for us and your provision for us as we hold the elements as they're passed out. In Jesus' name, amen.